Welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. This week, in a little while, I'm going to be talking with Ted Rao, who is part of Sociocracy for All, which is a really amazing organizational way that's little known and deserves a lot more discussion and exposure. But before I get to that, I'm going to talk about a book called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. The first part of the book is about the brain itself and how memory works. And the way we know how memory works is usually by studying the times that it doesn't work. So the main feature in this whole section is a guy who had a brain injury and survived and actually thrived. He did quite well, except he had essentially constant amnesia. He couldn't draw a map of the inside of his house or describe where anything was, but his body did the memorizing for him. If somebody said, why don't you go get a snack? He could jump up and go and find a snack in the kitchen and come back and sit down. But if the experimenter said, where are the snacks kept? He couldn't say. He had always forgotten. He couldn't, it like eluded him. But his body still remembered. And of course, there was a chunk of his brain that was still telling his body what to do and working with his body. I'm sure it's complimentary and making it so that he could function in very surprising ways. So he had a morning routine, he kept to his morning routine, but then they moved to a different town and he could still take walks, they still took walks, but if he went out by himself, he could get lost and he would not be able to tell anyone where he was. They couldn't stop him from slipping out. He was just too good, but he never got lost more or less. If anything, I mean, they would still go to try to find him because if he wandered too far, he would be unable to tell people what was wrong. And what they found was that he did fine unless something weird happened, like construction on the road or something. So he had this amazing body memory, but it was also kind of fragile. And he couldn't tell anyone what he was doing or how he was doing it. It was really fascinating. And I just want to stop because I'm going to talk a lot about sort of the neurology of habits and the book is all about making new ones, but it doesn't have to cover everything, obviously. But I want to say that I'm always very interested in learning about new habits. I'm very interested in learning about body habits, training. I'm always really interested in how athletes do like their visualization and things like that. I think that as humans, we're capable of astonishing feats. All of us are but only some of us do it. And that's always of great interest to me. But that said, the book never talks about the experience of the neurodivergent. So here they have this example of this guy, Eugene or something, and these difficulties he has and how he is a huge boon to these research scientists because they start studying habits and how he can have these habitual behaviors that are incredibly successful even as he cannot actually do things as instructed or explain things. And they tease out the parts of a habit, triggers plus routine, and that mindlessness is what creates habits as well, and that those mindless habits are frequently very bad habits. What it doesn't cover at all is Eugene's experience, because of course it kind of can't. They can talk to his wife, but they can't talk to him. But 
it's very interesting. I mean, he's able to form these habits based on the cue or trigger and then a routine and then a reward and then back around again enough times. But it's also sort of interesting from a neurodiversity point of view because paying attention to all the things that we do, being mindful can be really overwhelming and hard. And I mean, I like this book a lot and it is jam packed. But one really valuable thing that I have found as someone who has experienced a lot of neurodivergency in myself and others is that if it's possible to hook a habit to an organic kind of natural trigger, it's going to be easier to get into that rhythm. One of the things about habits, one of the things about habit books, whether it's just sort of on a performance kind of tell you what to do prescriptive kind of book or this, which is more descriptive. But one of the things about them is that they often are bought and then followed and then left on the shelf with a sense of shame. And I think I'd really like to see some study about whether sort of natural or organic triggers can help overcome some of that shame. So for example, I I associated cleaning with my mother's bipolar condition, something that was just done under like terrible circumstances by someone who's got a lot of her own issues and is controlling. So, so for me, cleaning was never a joyful thing to do. It was a thing you were made to do on someone else's schedule and that someone else was going through a huge crisis every time. So although I cleaned, cleaned my house, whatever, I, it was always with this sort of sense of it being under stress, that it's a stressful situation that you avoid it as long as possible. But then in order to live a healthy life, you finally get to it. All of this turned around when not only had I read this book, but some others, and I sort of got the idea that maybe if I had a natural cue, I could be better. Things that you kind of have to do maybe every couple weeks that just felt like they always fell between the cracks. And so I ended up picking a couple things, like a deep cleaning of the bathroom. And I realized this is over a decade ago, I thought, oh, my period comes every four weeks. So I should hook a habit to that. And a really good habit is one that feels very, at least for me, it feels very clean. The sort of, now it was kind of a treat. Now it was kind of like a, it just reframed everything. It reframed a mindset, but also it, the cue was something that was gonna happen regardless of my own intent, regardless of my own behavior. Of course, now that I'm older, that, that eventually changes. But by then I had actually built the queue and now I do it whenever I pay rent. But if you have some issues with neurodivergence, read this book with the idea that you're gaining knowledge, not that any of the stuff should be directly applicable to you or that it's even the best way to do some of this stuff. Because what they're talking about is... Uh, habit studies and not neurodivergent habit studies. So uh, just a little disclaimer there because they went on and on about this guy who had this medical condition, but then it was really just observational. In no way could they do anything for him or with him about this stuff. So the brain seems to have a built-in pattern of cue 
and routine and reward. And that's because our brains want to offload cognition. Our brain wants everything to be as easy as possible. Once you've gotten something, it like learns furiously and puts in as much and then puts as much as it can on autopilot. And that's why if you drive with a new driver or if you can remember back when you were a new driver, the cognitive load of learning how to drive your first multi-ton piece of machinery at high speeds is huge, terrifying and huge. But once you've done it for a couple years, almost no cognition goes into it. There's a certain part of your brain that's on alert in case something deviates, but mostly it's on autopilot and you may even enter a trance state during a drive home from work. So build it for long enough and you've got yourself a habit. Once that research was published, particularly with this guy, Eugene, and his loss of cognitive function, but not loss of habit function, habit formation has turned into a major field of study. And they've found that cues can be anything. A cue can be a visual trigger. It can be a certain time of day, a TV commercial, an emotion, a sequence of thought. And I think that one is especially spooky. Or the company of certain people. And that's one of the reasons why if you're trying to quit smoking, you shouldn't hang out with your smoking friends. If you're trying to quit drinking, you should stop hanging out with your friends when they're drinking. Routines can be complex or simple. They can be very long or they can be like shockingly short. And in terms of that idea of like, if a trigger is a sequence of thought, we do that in the microsecond and millisecond level. It's so fast. And then the routine can be so fast. And that's one of the reasons that idea of mindfulness is so tricky, especially for people who struggle with overwhelm, because go ahead, be mindful of something that just took milliseconds. It's going to be it's going to be tricky. It's going to involve some possible workarounds. It's going to maybe involve swapping out a different habit. And you may not be able to, you may have to change things entirely. And then rewards can be food, drugs, emotional payoff, self-esteem. It can be almost anything. Really, it can be a memory. The, the, the memory of pleasing somebody can be a reward, which can keep you in a terrible habit for decades without really realizing it. So the brain does all the heavy lifting. And we just end up making habits and we make many and maybe most of them mindlessly rather than with intent. Marketers know this. Capitalism depends on it. If you're hungry, every McDonald's looks alike. The food is fast. And that fast, that, that speed is an optimum reward system. And that mindless cues response reward are by definition the ones where we have a blind spot. And there was a beautiful quote about that guy that provided so much data for the early habit studies. Somebody said about him, the brain has this amazing ability to find happiness, even when memories of it are gone. And that's true. He had a fulfilling life for 13 years after his illness. 
It was pretty extraordinary. So then the author goes on and talks about creating new habits, the story of toothpaste. It's pretty recent that people use toothpaste with any regularity. It's been around for a long time. And of course, people brush their teeth with sticks and things like that. But it wasn't a regular cultural habit until after World War I. Foods before the Second Industrial Revolution tended not to be sugary or refined. But by World War I, dental health was appalling. It was terrible. And in fact, they had a hard time finding soldiers whose teeth were good enough to be soldiers whose teeth weren't like falling out and in pain and causing abscesses and stuff like that. So, but this is the early days of advertising and they were right on the edge of habit research. The principles that they developed to sell things like toothpaste are still used. So this one guy invented Pepsodent and found a new advertiser and was like, help me market this. And it took 10 years to create the ads that made brushing your teeth a regular part of what adults do. So the advertiser behind that realized that there was this whole piece of craving. He had to find something that would make people feel like they craved the product. And for the case of Pepsodent, he put all these smiley, you know, uh, very white-toothed, grinny Hollywood stars on ads and said, your teeth don't look as nice as this person's. Your teeth don't look as good as Shirley Temple's. But if you brush your teeth, they will. And that did it. And then a more recent story is the story of Febreze. So this is really interesting. This They were playing around with chemistry and found this chemical called hydroxyproblbeta-cyclodextrin. And the guy who discovered it and was working on it, trying to find a use for it, was a heavy smoker. And one day he came home from work and his wife said, you quit. And he said, I didn't. None of his clothes smelled like smoke. So they had this thing and now they were like, how are we going to, how are we going to sell it? And they, you know, cast around to try to find a hook, to try to find a way to get people to want to buy this stuff. And they found a woman who worked with wildlife and constantly smelled of skunk. And they were like, that's it. It'll take away smells. But it turned out that didn't sell it at all. It turned out the only way to sell it was to tell people that, like, once you've cleaned, it's nice to just shoot this on the room you just cleaned to finish up. And that is what sold Febreze. We talked about this last fall a little bit in the book, Don't Shoot the Dog, when I reviewed that. Our brains are so fast and they're so good at what they do that after some repetition, they learn to anticipate the reward, spiking the response before the reward is actually given, but just as soon as the cue is recognized. And Febreze plays into that. And actually, our brains are so good that if we use intermittent rewards, we'll be seriously hooked because we will hang all the time on the maybe we'll get a reward. And that's what keeps people problem gambling. There's also an overlay of belief. In order to have a big change, 
this may be the part that really falls apart for people. This may be the part where it's fragile. And that's why you can go to the gym three times a week in January and then never go again for 11 months. You have to believe that change is possible. And then you have to create a craving in response to the cue and some kind of reward. And for some things, for example, alcohol, addiction, AA was formed around making the belief part work because sometimes the belief part is more sticky if you do it collectively. So then on that collective idea, it goes into company habits and does the story of Alcoa Aluminum, which was supposed to, it was tanking. Profits were just rock bottom and they got a new CEO and he said, we're going to work on worker safety. And everyone was like, That's the stupidest idea we've ever heard. We need to work on our bottom line. And he said, that will take care of itself. And I love this. This is my kind of management because he, in order to do something to not tolerate injury, you can't order people to change. You can't order them to make a company more profitable. But you can start at the top and say, new culture, we do not tolerate injury. Safe workers are able to trust each other. Workers who understand the need to be responsible become more dedicated to doing a good job. The, they have to communicate. They have to communicate to their uh, bosses that an incident has happened right up the chain, and they had to do it fast. In fact, the CEO put himself at the top of the chain at all times. He was to be informed within 24 hours of any injuries, not just deaths, injuries. So reworking the industrial process had to follow that because why are these injuries happening? What? How do we change these things effectively? In order to do that, they had to measure, they had to collect data. They ended up instituting a Toyota-style line shutdown. So Toyota was the first, I think, industrial line shutdown company. So what they did was they told, they empowered all the workers. If there is a reason to shut down the line, shut it down. Because ultimately, even though the line should never be shut down theoretically, better to shut it down when something is weird and oncoming then wait until a complete disaster shuts it down and trashes products and machines all the way back the line. Also, workers know that their basic safety, they're, they're, you know, they're not going to die on the job. They can shut it down. So Alcoa put one of those in. Now they were working in compliance with OSHA. And they were avoiding all the bureaucracy and all the fines that violations bring. And they turned everything around. They were more, they had record profits within a year. These habits, once they're built up, become company culture. And in order to enforce that company culture, the new CEO said, if you are responsible for unsafe conditions, no matter how high up you are in the company. And in fact, the higher up, the more responsible you are and you will be fired. And he did that. So he followed through. And this meant that workers now knew they were going to be safe. Creating a safe environment for workers is never 
a bad idea. And I say this as someone who worked with circus performers for years and years and years. Safety is the paramount concern. No one should have to worry about not coming home from work. It's not worth it. No job is worth dying on the job. And when you are safe and you are responsible for your coworkers' safety, you have a very different company culture than one where you don't. So then he talks about how this feeds into things like crisis management. Chaotic, dysfunctional companies with terrible outcomes or barely tolerable ones are a direct reflection of the quality of communication within that company, which is Conway's law, which we've talked about before. Habits, which drive company culture, are morally neutral. Habits in yourself are morally neutral. But bad ones result in bad outcomes, bad health, unhappiness, whatever, dissatisfying things for you personally. In a company, it results in a lousy company, always at risk of being outdone by competitors or being sunk by, like the Titanic, by its own internal weak spots, like uh, Harvey Weinstein. So, like I talked about last week with the news media companies, infighting among colleagues makes for a sense of personal satisfaction in the winners. And it really, it very viciously feeds into a kind of satisfaction in the king leader, but it doesn't make for an effective, high-performance team. And it doesn't make for a stable, sustainable, resilient, drama-free workplace where the best work can be done by a maximum of people for the longest amount of time. And because of that, that kind of infighting king leader thing is inherently wasteful. In terms of that morally neutral, one of the strengths of habit awareness and habit recreation, especially in crisis points, is whether or not anyone is listening to criticism. Criticism is free data. This is trickier on a person level because criticism often is weighted down with manipulation or with other baggage but i'm really talking about at a at a organizational and company level anybody that takes the time to criticize a business should be thanked maybe their criticisms are unwarranted maybe they're asking for like not customer service but customer but you know for the employees to be their servants so maybe it's absurd but maybe, and very often, they're actually pointing out a gap, a blind spot of failure. And a good company will take that in. He goes on, and this is the first time I had ever heard of this when I read this book years ago, but I've run into it a thousand times since, which was the target baby ad problem, which is that once marketers get a hold of this data, they can make astonishing predictions. And I actually cannot wait for a world in which we have some command and control over our own data. I'd like to see my data. I would very much like to see what it indicates. I'd like to see what marketers see when they look at my data, even though I know I'm part of a larger group. But one of the things being, one of the famous things being, Target was able to figure out like over a decade ago, if people were pregnant, 
almost immediately. And certainly before the rest of their family knew, and it was kind of a scandal because they were sending out, they were developing little baby packets and sending out welcome baby packets to people who had not told other members of their family yet. And in some cases, teens who were pregnant and their parents didn't know yet, and their parents were pretty unhappy to find this out this way, and the kids were pretty creeped out to find it out this way. So now things are designed to hide the fact that they can do that. So you are still targeted with target baby, but now it's got 30% non-pregnancy ads so that you don't realize that they know you're pregnant and you don't feel creeped out about it. The last section of the book is bringing the entire topic of habits to society-wide. He talks about the civil rights movement. I'd be interested to see him update it to include BLM protests. Talks about the ties within the Montgomery community during the civil rights era that allowed it to be so effective at protesting. And we saw this actually when kids on TikTok were giving instructions to each other how to deal with tear gas and arrests during the protests. It does beg the question, and he never really answers this, but is there a habit aspect to police shooting? black and brown people? Is this a toxic habit that has developed? That has been one of the questions around just the sheer prevalence of this behavior. Why? Why does that cue go to a routine and what is the reward? So the book ends with William James again. He worked on his own habits and wrote extensively about them. Coming to the conclusion that if you make a habit of living you can change. The change becomes real. Your habits are what you choose them to be. And the choice comes first. And not choosing, in other words, being mindless, letting things sort of unfold, is a choice. So if you want to be happier, try noticing the cues. Try noticing the routines. And try, and this is so hard to do sometimes, Try teasing out what is the actual reward that's happening here. Stay with us. We're about to talk to Ted Rao of sociocracyforall.com. Today is Ted Rao, a coach and trainer for sociocracy, and has the website sociocracyforall.org. And we're going to talk about work, community, and creativity. But first of all, we're going to talk about sociocracy, which I learned about from you, Ted, years ago at a party. Uh, can you explain a little bit about what the concept is? Yeah, hello. So the concept of sociocracy is that we're trying to find a governance method for organizations so that allows for everybody to be heard really because many of us struggle with organizations where only some are heard and and we for example are on the shop floor of an organization and we could know how things could be done better but nobody ever asks us Mm. so it's a governance method where we try to get as much information into flowing into the decisions that we make together and also during the processes really hear each other well so that we can make good decisions 
and have full clarity over who is making decisions on what, because that's also something organizations struggle with. So it's both a decision-making method and a method um, of deciding who decides, and then also a method of learning over time so we can get our processes smoother and better for each other. Okay. And now I often, hmm, I when I've researched this, I've done a fair amount of reading since you first told me about it because I find it such an engaging idea. And one of the things that it sort of is contrasted with is unions. How how does that it almost they almost feel like two totally different environments, but how how does it how does sociocracy in an organization work versus or with a union? Mm-hmm. So let me start from sociocracy actually and then contrast it. So what we're trying to do in sociocracy is we are trying to put the people who are working into positions where they can be decision makers. So instead of having a situation where some people decide and the rest just carries out no matter what they think or what Mm. they know or what they'd rather do or how it could be done better, we are trying to move the power of decision making more into the hands of the people who are actually doing the work that is affected. So that's also how sociocracy translates. It's governance by those who associate together. So that's, that's the basic concept of putting, putting work and decisions close together. Mm. That is now in contrast, unions traditionally are a little bit like a band-aid on a power over structure, right? Some people decide and they are in charge and then they are the workers and then we need to unionize the workers so they even stand a chance in that system. Okay. But we're basically, basically one doesn't need that anymore if the workers are already the decision makers. And actually, as a little fun fact around that, sociocracy comes from the Netherlands. Okay. And of course, since we're talking Europe, right, this is like a strong tradition of, of, um, of employee, employee voice and unions. But a sociocratic organization doesn't have to be unionized at this, like, any organization a similar size, if it's not sociocratic, would have to be unionized by law. But oh. a sociocratic organization doesn't have to. That's actually an explicit exception of like, you don't have to because you already have it better than it would be. Oh, that's interesting. It just bakes it in. Yes. How now? So the the typical, I don't think it's an accident that the typical structure of an organization, certainly in the United States, is you know, almost like a traditional family, right? So it's it's a upper management telling or king maybe telling everybody else what to do. How does sociocracy benefit the people? Like, do they have to give up power from the top? It, does it flatten that organization in some way? Or how does it benefit the organization to, to do it this way? Well, to me, it has to do a lot with organization. I mean, with information, sorry. So the information that we have in the organization is quite plentiful, actually, right? We have people who are doing things, they're experiencing things, and they have good ideas. And typically what happens is that those ideas are not heard, right, as I said. Mm. Um, so if you, it depends a little bit on what, you know, what is your kind of benefit that you want. If your benefit is in the service of the organization, then the more information you get from the people who know the organization inside out, Mm. the better, right? But 
then it depends on, again, how you see what the benefit is. If you're the owner of the company and you want everything exactly run your way and only your way, mm. and that's beneficial to you, then you might not like the concept of giving people uh, more of a say. So that's a little bit of a, yeah. Yeah. Depends on where you are in your value set, I guess. Yeah, I guess I guess the thing would be when you said that, I thought, yeah, but having everything depend on one person and the sort of common setup makes it really unsustainable. Like, especially, I mean, I just think about that in terms of pandemic. People mm-hmm. get sick and if there's only one person or a select few who are the decision makers, then everything falls apart when those few have any disruption whatsoever right and i would talk about it in terms of resilience exactly what you're saying now stated in the positive right instead of this bottleneck kind of situation in a decentralized when we can talk about what that means but in in an organization where a lot of people can decide things autonomously because they know things about that area of the organization if now, for example, the person on the top gets sick, as a new example, mm-hmm. everything is still running exactly the same because people already know what they're doing and they're taking, they're taking charge themselves. And, and it just, yeah, it doesn't even matter so much who's at the top because everything is already running on the grassroots level. Well, now, so here's an interesting thing that, that makes me think of is, does sociocracy build trust or is it kind of built into the system that, that, trust occurs because that that to me is like the one sort of immediate knee-jerk reaction that i would expect to hear from people would be well i can't trust those other people lower down to have a real stake in the decision making or or to act competently in the decision like i mean just that failure of trust so is it baked into how sociocracy works or do you have to build trust in order to make a sociocratic system work in in an organization I would say both. Mm. And it, we're creating a little bit of an upward spiral, typically. Mm. It needs some basic sense of trust, yes. And also I would add a shared, shared reality mm. of what is important and how things are and so on. And then once we have that, uh, we need to create a sense of shared reality about how decisions are being made. So once we have an established decision-making method, and that's often really tricky for people, then we know how to build the system. Basically, then we have all the opportunities of of building a system so that we want it and and start from there. And then what we do is we divide all the authority that there is, and we talk about it in terms of domains. So domain is everything that can be decided. So everything that we have power over in a way together. And that we divide up and chunk it and say, okay, this piece you guys take, take, take care of, this piece you guys take care of. But that is a very clear agreement. Basically, it will be two teams make a decision, but this is your part and this is our part. And we know exactly how they interface and we know exactly how big the box is that you're playing in, basically. Yeah. So that way, yes, we require trust in order to be feel feel good about giving a team a certain amount of power mm-hmm. but on the other hand we create the clarity so that we can really make it fully safe because we're not giving everything to just one person right, right. but we're giving we're giving very clearly defined chunks to a very clearly defined group of people so it, that reduces some of the risk i guess 
And the other one is, I guess, maybe the biggest one, and that is that people tend to show up differently in different systems. So mm -hmm. if you are operating in a trust-based system, typically people also live up to that. Not without exception, but th that is the tendency. We see that, by the way, we do this little exercise that I really like, that we haven't done for a while because of COVID. <laughs> we put every everybody in the same room, and then we have them all form a big circle. And then we go over like, oh, if we made decisions like this in a big circle, what would that be like? And what would be good? And what would be bad about it? And then we have people stand in like a raise from the center, like basically a top-down structure. <laughs> yeah. There's the, the boss in the middle and then just like paying, playing telephone, you know, through the ranks basically, <laughs> right? And the interesting thing is if you do that, as soon as you have people standing, like physically standing like that in the room, the people in the lower ranks, so to speak, start chatting and disengaging. <laughs> and it doesn't matter at all who you put there. It is just, that's how humans are. If you at the end of everything, you're just like, whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, they're making decisions without me anyway, so you start disengaging, and that's exactly what we see in organizations. And then if we turn the structure in a way so that everybody is part of something, basically what we do is we take like the, if you, I mean, it's a little bit of a simplistic way, but it, it, it shows it well. If you think of those, like the end of the ray, so to speak, and you turn them inside out into what we call like a flower petal structure, where you have like circles connected to an inner circle, then everybody is a part of something. And all of a sudden, information flows and people feel much more engaged. So, and that's then also how they show up. Well, yeah. So that is, mm, that's really neat to me. Since you first told me about sociocracy, I've actually been to business school and I got an MBA. And <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and to its credit, the business school that I went to, which is Trinity College in Dublin, always hires a bunch of people from sort of the arts side, which is where I was coming in from, to be ringers so that when we would have some of these discussions, we'd speak up and say things like, this isn't the only way it can be run. <laughs> There's other ways. And the idea that, the idea sometimes about that trustworthiness to me I, I don't know whether it's impatience or what, but I would get to the point of just saying, then you're hiring wrong. Either hire people you can trust and trust them or look at how you're hiring because it's bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that whole thing about people just sort of devolving into not being interested or engaged anymore. One of the things that I did during my studies was there's a, poll that's done and unfortunately not often enough I think it's every three years and the last one that they did was 2017 and it was just this disengagement study where some huge amount something like 75 percent of the workforce is unengaged and mm. of that 30 percent is actively looking for another job at any given time <laughs> right or actively undermining the sabotaging wasn't it? I think I saw the study at somebody it was shocking just yeah. mind blowing just how much energy is lost by people actively sabotaging the, <laughs> sabotaging the workplace like wow you know and then it's yeah. funny when i talk to corporation they ask me of whether what we're doing is effective to now i'm like well <laughs> is what you're doing in any way effective yeah. i'm not so sure about that yeah and what's the dollar amount on that like exactly. yeah does now does does this i'd be really interested to know does this setup help with sort of detoxifying bad middle management? 
like that's one of the things, right? People leave, they don't, people hardly ever leave jobs. They leave management. And that's what you were speaking to before about being voiceless in and, and having no agency in your own work. But I'm wondering whether having something like this with the power sharing helps mm, minimize the toxicity that a bad manager can spread. Yeah, I guess it contains it a little bit. Here's, here's something about that. And that is, I guess I would have to introduce one concept that I'd like. If you have, let's say, and I often use parent-child kind of relationship to describe it. So if you have a parent circle that is forming a subgroup that I would call like a child circle or sub-circle, and circle is just a fancy word for a team, we would have to connect the parent circle and the sub-circle, we would have two people be part of both groups that we call linking to make sure that our groups are actually not siloed, but are talking to each other. And in another way that I really like is if you just imagine you're part of a team and then there's the next higher team, so to speak, the parent circle. Sometimes we have these dynamic between teams, right? That you think like, well, they, you know, they do this and they do that and we don't trust them and so on. Mm. But now with these two people being the bridge, we now have a situation where I know that, people who I trust are part and decision makers of that other group. So therefore, by extension, it's more like an extension of us instead of this antagony of us versus them. Mm. So that's one piece. And another piece is that those links, so the people who are in have the, the bridge position, yeah, the way they are selected is by consent. So our group, let's say if I'm, if I'm part of the sub-circle, our group selects somebody to be the link to the next higher circle by consent. So we would only choose somebody who we all trust. Mm. And then the next higher circle receives that person by consent. So they would only receive somebody as also being a decision maker for their group by consent. And then vice versa. They send us somebody from them by, that they choose by consent and send that person to us. So what does it mean for the people who are those links? It means that they must be people who are trusted by a lot of people. Mm. So that's a completely different animal from middle management that are basically playing this really tricky role of trying to, you know, please this way and please that way and trying not to get into trouble. Right. So it's, it's set up in, in, yeah, on, with completely different parameters. I guess it's hard to even compare that to what we see. Yeah. In yeah. Okay. So then the, the bridging piece is sort of a representative. You have a representative in all those other decision-making groups in some way, or, or you've linked sort of down the line to all of them. Right. And I guess the reason I'm not using the word representative is because they are not only like a spokesperson for a group. Like, mm-hmm. again, if I'm in, thinking myself from the, from the sub-circle, we're not sending so much a person to be a spokesperson for our circle in the next higher circle. But we would use the word delegate, which is, might just be semantics. But for me, it's the idea oh. of that person is both. You know, that person is a full member of that parent circle of ours, but also a full member of us. It's not that they have to just say what we said. They are actually completely their own decision maker. And they might even, let's say we have an issue and we say, hey, bring that to the parent circle. It needs to be figured out there. Mm. And then we have an opinion sort of in our circle and we send that delegate and say, hey, tell them this, you know. Mm. And then maybe on that next level and just by virtue of who's in the room and what kind of access to information they have, 
things might actually look different. Right? Mm, so, got it. and that might actually change things and they might make a different decision there and then come back and, you know, explain it to us. But that way, this person is not so much a messenger, but more a link, really. I like the word link because yeah. it's different from, from what we would typically, how we would typically describe it. Yeah, that is, that is very cool. And that trust piece means that when they come back, there's this sense of, well, now they know some context that I didn't know, and we'll just move on with this. And actually, that brings me to my favorite thing. <laughs> you had me at consent. Consensus. No, consent, not consensus, consent, right? Yeah. Consent, not consensus. I'm going to say that one more time because it's so hard. Consent, not consensus. So instead of having, a, so this is sort of the most basic of, of sociocracy that I understand, but instead of having a group vote and say, well, it's 51 to 49, I guess you do it. Sociocracy experiments and then with a, with a yes from everybody and then, a, and then later reviews. Is that fair to, do I have that right? Yeah. Um, let me just basically, let me. Hmm. You state it. You're the expert. I, I'm trying to. <laughs> I was trying to like, do I just add or just, do I, I, will, I will do a full restate, but everything you said, yes. So yes, I guess I, it, it's a good idea to contrast several terms here. One is a majority rule, as you said, it's when we just vote, right? And we've yeah. all been told over and over and over again that voting is the best and fairest thing ever. Right. <laughs> right. And we also all know that it's not really true, right? Right, like, we're living like, it like, now. Right, that is true too. And we've, yeah, I mean, we've all have heard, learned that the hard way, um, at least now. But I guess, for example, if I, if I use, let's say I've, you know, five children, so seven people right. with two grown-ups. So now if we say we're making an important decision together and four people want that one thing and three people absolutely don't want it, and then yeah. we would override three individuals in yeah. our family that seems crazy yeah okay so that's um and plus all the all the all the wisdom that these three people might be bringing just gets lost right, right. we just gloss over that of like yeah okay minority that's it i don't care what you think you know yeah. plus it polarizes so heavily because all of a sudden if you're slightly leaning toward one side because it creates the system of you either against us or, or for us, you're basically po being polarized because otherwise you harm your own group, right? It's the whole right. thing like when you often have a third candidate, right? That messes up the whole right. uh, binary system that we have set up here. Anyway, so that's majority vote and those are all the flaws. And then I know there's like um, ranked choice voting and so on all smart ways of somehow taking the edge off. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense. Like ranked choice voting makes a lot of sense on a large scale. Like if you have hundreds of thousands of people. Yet, if we have an organization, there are better ways of things we can do. And yes, so let me now go to consent versus consensus because people get tripped up there. Yeah. Consensus is typically when we ask, you know, we have a group, let's say of, I don't know, let's use a group of 10 people. And we only move forward if everybody says, yeah, okay, good plan. Right. That's typically how people understand consensus. And one can totally refine that. The problem is with consensus that, that there's, that's a little bit of a joke or a pun, 
there's no consensus on what consensus even exactly means because the question is, do I have to like the proposal to say yes in consensus or do I just have to be willing to accept it? Ah. And those are two slightly different things. And I'm going to tell you a little story about that. Uh, we recently here at, in the nonprofit, we had a, we had a decision that involved, um, long story, but it involves basically messing with our passwords of like all our access to all kind of software and so on. So, you know, if you're like, and I'm the ED and the exec, executive director of the nonprofit, I'm like, oh my mm. God, that's going to be horrible. Mm. I know it. So we um, did our typical process and it involves first asking like, here's the proposal to switch over to this cloud-based password system. Are there any questions? I didn't have any question. Are there any reactions? And I set up in my space, in for like when it was my time to speak and the reaction, I just gave a plain rant of two minutes of just saying like, how horrible this is going to be. <laughs> and then we did what we call a consent round where every person in the room, like every decision maker on that decision in the circle is being asked, well, do you consent? Yeah. And I was not the facilitator. Then the facilitator called that round and I consented. And the facilitator almost jumped out of his chair. He was like, why are you consenting? I thought you hated it. And I said, well, I do hate it, but it's absolutely the right decision for us. Yeah. Yeah. So I was consenting wholeheartedly and I would totally object if there were a reason how it would impact negatively what we're trying to do, but it's not, it's just heavily inconvenient, but necessary. So the way, again, how I explain consent, I get always a little bit self-conscious because I know a lot of people are very much attached to consensus and their interpretation of consensus. Mm. And it just gets really tricky then to, to argue because some people say, well, that's, you know, the way you describe consent is how I understand consensus. And like, fine, then it's the same thing. <laughs> but sometimes it's not. So that's, you know, anyway, that depends a little bit on, on who I'm talking to. But the way I describe it in the shortcut is consensus means if I ask all of my five kids, do you want pizza for lunch? Right. What do you think my five kids are going to say? Three of them are going to yeah. scream, you know? <laughs> yeah. One of them is going to say, Ugh, you know? Again. And one of them is probably going to start pushing the other or something. You know, like that's typically <laughs> what happens. Because, But by asking, do you want pizza for lunch? You're putting the bar, the expectation to you will get what you want. Right. And instead, I now flip it and say, all right, I'm thinking about pizza for lunch. Any reason not to have pizza? Mm. And now you have to show me how that's going to create harm. So that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> so we're, we're actually, and that's where you were coming from with the experimentation. It's easier to make a decision. It might not be the perfect decision. Yeah. Okay. There might be people that say, eh, we could have done something better, but this is fine. And the good thing is we are making a decision, which means now we're trying something out, which means now we're gathering some real life experience, which means next time we review when we review the decision, we have, we, mo we know more about how it played out and we can improve it there. So instead of going for the perfect plan mm. from the get-go, we're going for something that's good enough and safe where everybody says, yeah, fine, okay, willing to try. And then we improve it from there incrementally, which is a better strategy in the long run. Yeah, and it avoids that paralysis. Totally. <laughs> well, I actually could and may I get together with you again to talk more specifically about how sociocracy is set up because I find it fascinating. But in fact, what I wanted to ask you about was how you got into this, how you got into this work. Well, I moved into a co-housing community here in North Amherst. So um, 
And this community is run using sociocracy. Mm. And actually, it's called dynamic governance here. So if you ask my neighbors, they would call it DG, dynamic governance. Okay. But it's exactly the same thing. It's D- Dynamic governance was chosen as a term in the U.S. because some people didn't like the word sociocracy. We use the word sociocracy in our work just because it's the legacy of the actual thing. So, okay, but that's what it's called in like Germany and the Netherlands. Yeah, exactly. Okay, got it. So yeah, I was, um, I remember still the first moment when I noticed that there was something special about it. And that was because, um, you know, this feeling when you say something out loud and you, you notice it's true or you realize it's true what you said, though you'd never consciously had the thought. <laughs> so I was in a meeting and we're doing a meeting evaluation and I'm hearing myself say, I'm leaving this meeting feeling more connected and more inspired or something like that. More, in, yeah, some than I than when I came. Okay. And I thought, hold on, I've never said that about a meeting. Yeah, That's yeah, on. yeah. This is weird. So then I got curious about, okay, what is it about these meetings? What is it about rounds? What it is about the small groups and just the overall mindset that really, really works for me. And then I got completely pulled into this kind of work. That is very cool. So that already existed at the co-housing place right when you got there? Yeah, actually, the the um, as the story goes, it's kind of a funny coincidence. As part of the membership process to become a member, one has to attend what we call a um, full circle, so like an all member meeting, mm-hmm. which pre COVID happened once once a month, everybody together, and just to see you know see what what the vibe is like in the group mm. and so on. And during that meeting, that so when I visited as a visitor. It was the meeting when sociocracy was officially accepted as the new governance oh, system. Oh, wow. You walked in right for it. I was thinking like, what is, you know, I had no idea what was even happening. And now I, knowing what I know now, that was a really remarkable thing because this community existed since 1994 mm. and had been run like using whole group consensus Yeah. until they switched or we switched. So decisions were actually made with, you know, like dozens of people in the same room for four hours trying to decide whether to buy, you know, new knives for the kitchen kind of stuff. Yeah. In fact, that's, that's was my, before meeting you, that was my general impression of co-housing groups was a great idea, a lifetime of meetings with people who are angry about wind chimes and people who are angry at the people who are angry about wind chimes so that they put up 52 wind chimes. <laughs> oh, is that a real story with the wind chimes? Uh, yes, it is. Um, <laughs> and I do not live in co-housing, but I did look at it. I built a house actually in the same area in 1994 because I had looked at some co-housing places and I thought, who can live this way? <laughs> and then uh, and then I met you and you're like, we're doing something different. And I was like, ooh, mm. so that's so that's how you got into it. And then did you go like, did you go to Europe for training on all of this or? Well, the, the person, my colleague now, Jerry Koch Gonzalez, who had brought sociocracy to this community, he had been doing consulting also with other organizations. So I basically jumped right in and now we're mm. doing it together with a bunch of other people internationally. So I got trained by just tagging along. Yeah, well, an apprenticeship. Yes, exactly. Luckily, you know, because that was not, it's it's not something, at least back then, it wasn't something that you could sign up for and do so easily. Like there was no training of trainers kind of thing readily available. Mm -hmm. And now, as a matter of fact, I'm running the training of trainers 
for for sociocracy with a global group. Oh, cool. And then how many organizations would you say? And and I guess, mm, so that's going to include sort of community organizations. But anyway, how, how many would you say in the U.S. are being run like this, businesses and community organizations? Such a tricky, such a tricky thing. Let mm. me first tell you why I can't tell you, and then I am going to make a guess. Uh, because, of course, it's not that every group that adopts consent and a few other of the processes then sends us uh, an email, right? I wish they would, yeah. but they know. Because, of course, that's the that's the the whole thing about being self-managed, self-governed, and in a decentralized way. That just means that it's even harder to 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 ever hear. So, but mm. I guess let's see. I would guess just alone in co-housing that there must be something like 30 communities just in the U.S. um, playing very seriously with it. Mm -hmm. And I would guess, I would guess a few hundred organizations in the U.S. It's actually much bigger in Europe at this point. Sure. But it's really strongly on the rise because so many people are tired of, of how things are done. So it took a while to basically get out of that hippie kind of um, <laughs> niche, right? Yeah. And now there are consulting companies that use it. And so it's it's actually, yeah, it's something that you can say out loud um, and people go like, oh, cool, self-managed. You know, that's it's now a hip thing, actually. Right, right. I'd like to thank Ted Rao for joining us today. Tune in next week for the second half of our conversation. You can find previous episodes and information at our website, working9to-thrive.com with the number nine.